What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain it's November, everybody, and that means Thanksgiving's coming up. That is my favorite holiday. I get to sit down with the fam, eat some turkey with the famous champagne gravy, watch some football. And that also means that right after Thanksgiving is going to be Black Friday and, of course, Cyber Monday, which follows, which is the absolute best time to get anything and everything that is on it. There's going to be sales and doorbusters and all the things we normally do. The campaigns this year are on another level, so definitely check out our media as well. Uh, so if you need some honest stuff in the meantime, go grab you some stuff. But definitely for the big purchases, hold off and wait until Black Friday and Cyber Monday hit because that's when you're going to get the best deals. Before people were really talking about organic food and psychedelics and all of the healthy things you can do for your body, there was Dr. Andrew Weil. And he was not only one of the progenitors, he's also continued being one of the thought leaders that's really pushed this movement to the place where it is today. You know, we're all standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before us, and Dr. Andrew Weil is absolutely one of those giants. So he's also the founder of True Food Kitchen, which probably many of you have eaten at, and he's got a great matcha company, and he's just a great overall dude. So I hope you guys enjoy this podcast as much as me. It was absolutely one of my favorites. Dr. Andrew Weil. Hi there. We made it happen. Finally. Finally. <laughs> Completely my fault that it didn't happen the last few times, but here we are at your beautiful home in Tucson. Thanks for having me here. Glad you're here. You got beautiful dogs, you got beautiful plants, you got beautiful crystals. You like living the life out here. I enjoy living in the desert, and I like uh, like my environment to reflect my state of mind. I think it typically does, but people don't recognize True. that, right? Like True. You say, oh, I want to live in New York. Well, what is New York going to do to you? You know, like versus what is Tucson going <laughs> right. to do to you? Like people discredit the environment, yep. I yep. think, a little bit too. Well, enormous interaction between you and the environment. Right. And that's a funny thing is we think of ourselves so separate mm -hmm. from the food we eat, from the places we live, from the interactions we have. It's like we always look at ourselves as an island. Not so. Not so. <laughs> Not so. And that's something you spotted probably earlier than pretty much most people in the medical profession. I mean, when you started talking about this stuff, you were on an island, actually. Of, yeah, it was a pretty thought. small island back then. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, I've been writing and saying the same things about medicine, health, medical education for over 40 years. And uh, when I first started doing that, uh, nobody paid any attention to me. And then I got a larger and larger following in the general public, but none of my medical colleagues would listen to me. 
and that didn't why is that what what was going on like what let's talk about the times then and then because i want to i want to build this arc of the evolution of what's been happening in medicine well first of all let me say uh when i finished medical school i did an internship and i was pretty disillusioned because i felt i had learned nothing about how to keep people well Mm. And that always seemed to me that should be the main job of doctors. Makes sense. And secondly, the methods that I was taught to use, I saw do too much harm, particularly adverse drug reactions. So I, I knew I didn't want to... against the Hippocratic Oath, right? Do no harm. Right. right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> they like to put up statues of Hippocrates in front of, uh, you know, medical institutions. There's one here at the University of Arizona. And, you know, the main things he's remembered for other than the Hippocratic Oath are first do no harm and revere the healing power of nature. And both of those principles are consistently ignored in the buildings behind the statues. <laughs> so they just, they just pick and choose what they True. like. Anyway, I saw a lot of harm done yeah. by conventional medicine. So um, I knew I didn't want to practice that. I didn't know what to do instead of that. So I made my living as a writer for a number of years and found ways to travel around the world and look at healing practices in other cultures. And uh, also when I was studying psychoactive drugs and mind-body interactions. And eventually I put together my own system that I first called natural and preventive medicine and then later came to call integrative medicine. And at that time, you know, when I grew up, um, nobody questioned standard medicine. <laughs> you want to Andre, would you remove the squeaker toy from the dog? That's a great Easter egg in the podcast. <laughs> we want a good squeaker toy in there. Yeah. So uh, when I grew up, I grew up in the late 1940s, 1950s. And at that time, um, nobody questioned what a doctor told you. Uh, doctors wrote prescriptions in Latin, and that was designed to keep you from knowing what they were. And you handed them in in a pharmacy over a very high counter that was there to prevent you from seeing what was going on. You never questioned a doctor why you should take a medication. Uh, you know that has changed. Optimizing for the placebo effect, really. However. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, anyway, when at the time that I got to finish my medical training, there was already a lot of interest in the general public in other ways of doing things. Um, and so I, I spent time with chiropractors, osteopaths, herbalists, and looking at all this stuff that I'd never heard about in medical school. And it also struck me that there were a lot of things that were crucial to health that I learned nothing about, like nutrition. You know, that's a glaring omission in medical education still today. Mm -hmm. um, so, what is it? Three weeks of nutrition? I got thirty minutes in you my got 30 in four minutes. years of medical school. Right, thirty minutes yeah. of, and probably largely incorrect it nutrition. Was, well, it was grudgingly advice. allowed to a dietitian at one hospital I worked at to tell us about special diets we could order for patients. And that uh -huh. was it. And that really has not changed a lot, although there's finally beginning to be outcries about that and, you know, it will be corrected. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, when I began writing about the need for another kind of medicine, um, you know, there was a lot of hostility that I got from my colleagues. Either, either they ignored me or they were hostile. And that did not change until the early 1990s. Wow. And that was when the economics of healthcare began to go south. So interesting lesson for me is that no amount of ideological argument moved anything. It was only when the pocketbooks of institutions got squeezed that they began to open up to what consumers had been demanding. Yeah, I think we always hope that inspiration is going to be what moves people, but typically it's desperation right. that moves people, right? <laughs> yeah. you know, those are the two driving forces, and right. unfortunately we tend as human beings to wait for the latter. Right. You know, and I guess that's kind of what you've seen. And now things get even more desperate, desperate enough that things like the ketogenic diet and other things, practices that were have been around for a right. long time. But now people are like, 
maybe this will work as an adjunct to chemotherapy. Maybe this will yep. work for different conditions, you know? Well, it'll give you an even more, to me, more glaring example. Uh, when, uh, when I was in medical school, the idea of taking uh, probiotics, that was something that health nuts did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was just made fun of. People eating yogurt, people eating fermented foods. And suddenly, this is now one of the hottest areas of medical research, the microbiome and what you can do to support it. Yep. So yep. big change. And an important one. And then I think, you know, I was talking with um, Travis Christofferson, who's a great researcher. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but recently was interacting with him. And I've also been researching on my own the potential of fecal transplants mm-hmm. as like a next level treatment for probiotic, you know, kind of repopulation. You know, and like all of these different medical practices, which are approved in narrow windows right. for C. diff infections yeah, yeah, yeah. or something like that, like... Yes, of course, probiotics. Like the, we're finding more and more immune system, neurotransmitters, everything related to the gut. Okay, we can orally take it and hope it survives the stomach and yep. makes it all the way down to the colon. Or we could go up yep. the other way right. and give it a run with some reflourishing probiotics, you know, yep. through the back door instead yep. of the front door. Yep. You know? and, and just looking at that and removing our biases and being like, all right, let's, let's help ourselves out here a little bit. <laughs> well, a lot of change coming. So, you know, I'm very happy to see, uh, you know, things moving finally. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were exploring all of the different medical treatments. And one of, the, one of those avenues was psychoactive psychedelic mm-hmm. plants. Did you look at that as an opportunity as a spiritual practice at that point? Or did you see the medicinal benefit, you know, that is now getting proven out? Uh, through some of the scientific research? I'd say both. Um, I became interested in uh, psychedelics probably when I was a high school senior. So this was like way back, 1959. And uh, I managed to get my hands on mescaline. Uh, in Like a real Aldous Huxley. Yeah, really. Actually, <laughs> I heard him lecture uh, oh, nice. in Boston. That inspired me to... Did f- you get to meet him? No, but I wrote him and asked him how to get mescaline, and he gave me a, you the, know, a how lead. How nice of <laughs> yeah, him. Right, it was very nice. He's, he's already been right. my hero, and now he's even more of a hero. <laughs> so this is about Good 19, job. This is about Aldous. 1960, and I took mescaline a number of times. This was long before I smoked pot or you know knew much about that. And so I think my primary interest at that time was uh, growth and development and spiritual mm-hmm. possibilities of it. I, at the same time, I majored in botany as an undergraduate at Harvard, which was a very unusual choice of a major. It was an old-fashioned field that, you know, was obsolete. But I had the good fortune to work with a man named Richard Evans Schultes, who was the father of modern ethnobotany. And uh, one of his great interests was psychoactive plants. So as a result of my association with him, uh, I began doing explorations in South America where he had done a lot of work. And um, so I was very interested in looking at the plant sources of, of all of these things, everything from coca leaf to uh, ayahuasca. And, uh, you know, I was interested in all aspects of it, you know, including mm. the potential for medical use. Interesting. And when, so when was the first ayahuasca experience that you had? Probably around 1973. So not trendy then, <laughs> no, Dr. Wow. Nobody had heard of it no up here. no Boy Scout badges at all for that. Nobody heard of it up here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I had a lot of experience of that kind. It's, it's funny to me now watching all this become so popular. You know, this was stuff that I was into and exploring, you know, way back then. Mm-hmm. And, and I, back at that time, I, the first book I wrote was called The Natural Mind. It was about drugs and the drug problem. And I talked a lot about the the positive potential of all of these things and ways that they might be used. And uh, it's taken a long time for people to catch on to that. Yeah. 
What was that first masculine experience like for you? Because I've had masculine through, um, you know, I've taken Wachuma many mm -hmm. times in right. the ceremonial context, uh, down at Spear Quest with Don Howard, who's been one of my great teachers. And masculine is the active ingredient in the Wachuma San Pedro, right. same as yeah, in, yeah. Uh, in peyote. But I've never taken it isolated. Right. I imagine it has some kind of similar similarities. Yeah, as I, far think as, I think generally similar. But um, it's, I mean, very what feels like serotonergic, like very heart opening, uh -huh. but also has this very interesting psychedelic kind of landscape. Where yeah. To, to me, uh, compared to, say, LSD, it feels much more earth-connected, uh, really? natural, grounded. And, uh, you know, the first time I took it, really nothing of interest happened because I had no context in which to put it. I, I had had no other experiences with uh, psychoactive drugs other than alcohol. And I took it, I didn't take it with anyone who was knowledgeable about it. So I felt a kind of vague intoxication, but nothing interesting. Mm. The second time I took it, I had like a very profound experience with it. That's not uncommon with most plant medicines, True. right? Like, you know, you'll talk to people who are offering it and they'll bring their Wall Street business-minded friend in for their first, yeah. you know, psilocybin experience. And they'll start off with three grams and they'll be like, nothing, right. five seven and like for me if i'm on seven grams i'm evaporating yeah, right. into the ether i don't exist anymore right f until i come back to myself right like i remember i took close to seven grams as my largest dose wow. and i was outside it was a beautiful day like this and i completely evaporated into the fractals of the sun what a good so like, thing it was amazing yeah. it was incredible but the idea of somebody then you know and i'm hearing these stories of people taking 10 11 12 grams and still their mind is so stubborn or the pathways mm -hmm. are so like restricted and the, the ability of the mind to fight off that, mm -hmm. that kind of sensation is pretty remarkable. Well, I think for me, the most uh, interesting and important fact about these agents is that the experiences that you have are crucially dependent on set and setting, dose set and setting. You know, it's not just the drug. Yep. And that's a mistake that a lot of people make who try to study these things. You know, it really is, if, if you have not had the experience uh, and try to study this in other people, you're, you're not going to see it. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, a piece of practical advice for people who want to have these experiences and are new to them, you want to do it in the company of, of people or with somebody who is experienced in them. You, you need for a guide sure. or a shaman. For sure. And one of the concerns I have as this all becomes mainstream and accessible in our country uh, is I think we need a new class of professionals out there, yeah. you know, who can be guys and certainly not doctors or psychiatrists, you know, conventional ones. You need people who are knowledgeable through their own experience to be able to set things right so that the person taking the agent will have the, you know, have the right kind of experience. I mean, I think that's what, you know, those big projects like the Zendo project that goes to the festivals. And I mean, I talked to Ferris about it and I've talked to Rick Doblin about it and the different people involved from all different levels who work with it. And most of the time you're just kind of hanging out with people and letting them know like, yeah, what you're feeling is normal and you're going to be okay. Right. You know, like just that comforting, like, uh-huh, uh-huh. You're seeing these things, you're feeling these things, totally normal. I mean, I've I've even because people know that I've I've been on my own psychedelic medicine journey since a vision quest at 18. So mm -hmm. it's been over two decades yeah. now. So I I've gotten my fair share of calls of people who've tried it on I'm their sure. own at home and like, hey, I'm feeling this. I'm really worried. I was like, okay, you're experiencing what I call the normal. Uh-huh. So like relax. You'll be okay. Put on some good music, like everything's going to be all right and just that comfort reassurance that yeah. reassurance right. that like 
yes, it's, it's ineffable. Like I understand that what's happening is not like anything that you've ever experienced before. Mm -hmm. And that's supposed to be what's happening. Mm -hmm. And just that like assurance is usually enough to help people get through. But I always encourage again, that, that minimum effective dose. If you take some and you don't feel it like your first time with mescaline, great. Yeah. Fine. There'll always be another time. Right. Why be in a hurry? <laughs> We're not in a hurry. That's good. I like that. Yeah. You'll get there. You know, right. like just have your first day. Maybe it's a nice little meditative repose, yeah. whatever it is. Right. You know, like don't be in a rush to like escalate this thing and mm -hmm. get this massive experience right away. Now, one of the, uh, one of my interests is the possibility of using these in, in physical medicine, not just psychiatric medicine. Sure. You know, most of the talk is about using them for depression, for obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. But I think there's huge potential for using them in autoimmunity, in a whole range of chronic medical conditions, because uh, I just see over and over again that the mindset of people with chronic illness is a significant factor in what happens to them. And if you can change that mindset, and a very easy way to do that is with psychedelics, the physical condition can change. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I mean, the mind-body connection is another one of those things that's dramatically overlooked, just like the nature-to-human connection mm -hmm. and like social-to-social -social connection. Right. We, we're overlooking so many of these aspects, and one of them is that idea that mind and body are separate. Right. Sorry, they're not. You know, and, and we know this. We test for the placebo in every single clinical trial. Right. Why? Because that's the mind's ability to affect the body. But we're always trying to rule out the placebo effect. We should be trying right. to rule it in. That's the meat of medicine. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's what you want to happen more of the time. Yeah. It's, the, it's the healing effect from within without the direct effects of the intervention, which are likely to be harmful. Yeah, you know what has no side effects? The placebo right. effect. Exactly. You know, like it's going to just heal. <laughs> right. And just heal alone, right? Like right. you don't, your liver doesn't have to process anything. You don't have to deal with any of the other stuff. And I think that's why you've seen this kind of meteoric rise of someone like Dr. Joe Dispenza, who's yeah. wrote the book, You Were the Placebo, and is leading these giant retreats and workshops saying like, hey, change your mindset, mm -hmm. change your emotional state, you know, send those epigenetic triggers that you were well right. and watch your body become well. To meet so again, this is amusing to doing. me to watch all this suddenly, you know, explode this yeah. way because I was yeah. writing and saying this <laughs> back in uh, the early 1980s. Yeah, it's an interesting game of of critical mass, right? Like and yep. we were talking about that when we we're having a matcha, which yep. is amazing matcha, by the way. If anybody wants like the best matcha and some dope T-shirts, matcha kari. Yes, please go to matcha.com and we matcha have matcha.com. That's such a gangster that, move. Wasn't that good? That's, that's a good so one. so good. That was scoring that URL <laughs> was great. Oh. <laughs> and I have a discount code for your listeners. It's AM15. Beautiful. So good. Way to, we have really good matcha. Really and good matcha. The trouble is there's a lot of crap matcha out there. There is. There's a lot of crap everything. Everything, right. Yeah. If there's good stuff, there's crap stuff. True. Yeah. The matcha is a good thing. And get the Godzilla crawling out <laughs> of a bowl of, of tsunami matcha. Because that's awesome. That's good. I'll get you one of those t-shirts. All right. Yeah, for good. sure. Um, yeah. But so as we're saying, you know, critical mass is a, is a thing. It's like the first person who's talking about it is largely going to get ignored. But, right. but some people will listen. And then some more people will listen. And then some more people listen. And, and that's, I think, what we're seeing in the health you know, health and nutrition movement yep. in the psychedelic medicine movement yep. in the mind body movement. And there's more things like that that are just going to keep going, which is a cause for optimism, I suppose, 
oh, I think it is. You know, but as I say, it's amusing to me because this was old stuff for me. <laughs> <laughs> and to suddenly see people coming around to it, it's, you know, it's great. Well, you know, when you look at the great, because you're, you know, you're really one of the pioneers. You're one of the progenitors of so many of these things. And a lot of times you can look back through history and like someone like Nikola Tesla or, and they were really only recognized posthumously right. and rewarded posthumously. But here you are thriving in Tucson. You got true. 29 true foods. And true. <laughs> you know what? At least you're getting a piece of this. Exactly. You know what I, I mean? Like that. So like right. there's some, there is some justice in yeah, the world like for it. you here. <laughs> you know, you didn't have to, didn't have to wait the whole time. So true. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, so when you started talking about, I mean, food, food, when you came online, I mean, that was like the, that was like the flourishing mm -hmm. of crap food, mm -hmm. I feel like. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't around then, but like yeah, I true. was born in 81 yep. and like crap food was in full, right. full effect. Right. I mean, it was like the Mad Max of corn syrup and low fat everything. Yeah. And you know, even more appalling was how this proliferated in healthcare facilities. You know, the yeah. food served in hospitals is, is appalling. That should be a national scandal. Jello, bad muffins. Right. And like, I, I last I checked, something like 46% of U.S. hospitals have fast food restaurants on their premises. And the number is increasing. <laughs> and, and that's, a, I'll tell you a, a story about why, why, why it's difficult to change that. I got a letter a couple years ago from a first-year medical student at the University of Pennsylvania who had tried to start a campaign to get a McDonald's out of the university hospital. He got a lot of signatures on a petition, got publicity in the Philadelphia papers, and was called in by the dean of students who said if he persisted in this, he would jeopardize his medical degree. So the hospital had signed a deal with the devil and this threatened the profit that they were making from that. And that's the problem whenever you try to change things, yeah, there's a lot you of run up there. against these vested interests that have total control. So you've probably heard me talk about it before, but Thrive Market is absolutely one of the best marketplaces to go get your healthy food. And it's not only healthy, it's delicious. And you're able to like sort it by exactly what you're looking for. So if paleo is your thing, you can sort by paleo. If keto is your thing, you can sort by keto. You can figure out exactly what you're looking for and then find all of the delicious snacks and foods that you want and have them delivered directly to your door. And that includes wine too which is awesome because the wine is sourced for low environmental impact. It's been handpicked for great taste. It's affordable. And you know that you're going to get good wine that's good for you because some wine has up to like 60 additives. Because if you're making alcohol, you actually don't even have to list the additives that are in there. So for those of you who like fireball whiskey and stuff like that, like they got some shit in there <laughs> and you won't be finding that on Thrive Market because they handpick and curate these things that they know are going to ultimately be clean and be good for you. So please check it out. When you go to thrivemarket.com slash Aubrey, you're going to get 25% off your first order and a free 30-day trial of the service. So once again, go to thrivemarket.com slash Aubrey. And thank you so much for supporting the podcast and checking out these sponsors. I wouldn't be talking about them if they weren't people that I use myself. It's a funny thing because I think a lot of times we can hypothesize like a nefarious group of people who is really plotting against, but it's generally just like slight, there are some of those. There are some, <laughs> there might be a couple, but mostly it's just slightly greedy, yeah. slightly ignorant, yeah. slightly scared people who are trying to, you know, the hospitals worried about their the money that they're right. bringing in. They know they got this deal. They're worried about the McDonald's lawyers if they if they screw with it. So it's just like a little bit of fear, a little bit of ignorance, and. The, but it goes a long way. 
Long way. We have managed, people eat what's cheap and what's available. And we have made the unhealthiest food cheapest and most available. Yeah. So that's got to change. Can it change? Again, you run up against these vested interests. You know, the government subsidizes corn and soy, and that's why high fructose corn syrup is cheap and used in everything, and why refined soybean oil is cheap and used in all processed foods. There's no subsidies to fruits and vegetables, which are out of the reach of most of many people who are poor. Yeah, that's a real that's a real problem, especially when you look at something like soy, which not only has the phytoestrogen issue, right. and you know, we are way over estrogenized here as a, a culture now, but then. I was reading something um, where I think soy absorbs more glyphosate <laughs> than any other plant that we use in like commercial crops. Uh -huh. Like it like really takes all of the all of the Roundup and really <laughs> brings it inside. You know, gives it a nice warm hug. Well, you know, the good thing is that if if uh, soy or other foods have the USDA organic label, they can't be GMO and can't yeah. have that stuff. So, so that's we're good. lucky to live in a country which does that. However, there's constant efforts to whittle away at that, you know, and allow things like sewage to be used on organic crops. And we got to keep fighting that. Really? Yeah. That's, that's not good. Yeah. Because the people who are providing the sewage are not eating organic. Right. <laughs> not eating organic things right. to create their sewage. Yeah. They're shitting out. Exactly. Not exactly the healthiest <laughs> things. You know, like maybe like, if we're in a utopian society, uh -huh. that sewage might just be just fine. <laughs> but when you're eating McDonald's and shitting in the city water, then we're putting that on the organic crops. That's not going to do it. True. By the way, one of the interesting fact I came across recently is that um, you know plants have microbiomes as well as us and animals, and the microbiomes of organic fruits are different from those of the same fruits grown conventionally. Uh, that they're more diverse in different organisms and probably better for us in, in that regard. So there's you know, all Makes this debate sense. of whether organic foods are better or worth the money. But that's an interesting one nobody's looked at, that the, the microbiome, and it's not just the surface, it's, it's in the core and the seeds and the peel and the flesh of fruits. Wow. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you can see that, though, in... Like, look, if you really want to make this test yourself, go crack a conventional egg and then go crack an organic pasture-raised yeah. egg yeah. where the chickens were roaming around eating worms and doing whatever. Right. One is going to be orange, orange, like a traffic cone, right. and one is going to be this pale, sickly yellow, yeah. you know, that that's, and you'll see like a very, vis like very clear difference. Same with, people don't know that like most of the salmon that's farm-raised, they have to dye it pink. I've seen a color wheel that was made for fish farmers that had all these different shades of pink going to red. So you could pick the shade that your customers in your area like salmon to be, and then that determined how much of the, yeah, red of the carotenoid that. that you put in. Yeah, Where really it should be the astaxanthin that's naturally right. like coloring the yep. flesh of the fish, which is a really potent antioxidant, yep. which is great for the body. Like, right. And everything from, you know, these people making these arguments are just uninformed. Right. I mean, you measure the amount of CLA in cows that have been grass-fed yep. versus cows that have been corn-fed and yep. the cla is way up right. and that's obviously a crucial nutrient for all manner of different things and these are just we're just looking at pointing at one little tiny piece but like you said we're not even looking at the microbiomes of these fruit yet we're not even you know that's yeah, not even thing. close to that. we're not even close to understanding the comprehensive difference or you know let's god forbid we look at the energetic exchange which is you know way out of the realm of science Definitely. right like a t may, is it possible that a tortured animal does not transfer the same quality of nutrition as you know a happy animal like 
I think it might be possible. Try to talk but... about that with a materialistic <laughs> scientist and right. see how far you get. Well, one of the things that you know hunters know too, or the people who've been out there, is if an animal has a long, you know, let's say it's a it's a poor shot and it's a long track and there's a lot of stress, like the meat is tougher. Mm-hmm. Like the, all of those stress hormones could mm-hmm. like flush through the flesh of the animal. Uh-huh. That's something that's like actually pretty well understood. Like a long that long fight will change the change the nature and the quality right. of, of the meat that you have. So the idea that that all of these things don't matter, that a lifetime of stress and a lifetime of mm-hmm. pain isn't going to affect the the milk or the eggs right. or the actual flesh of the animal come on now how about the possibility that the mental state energy of a person preparing food is going to affect the quality of the food that you eat i'm open to it yeah i mean we've both taken ayahuasca we've seen some weird (laughs) shit you know so for us for us we look at science as like great that's great yeah the science book as far as it goes as far as it goes right. the science book doesn't apply when you're on your second cup and the <laughs> locusts are humming and the full moon is shining outside your maloka like i remember that yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's like science book out the window yeah, yeah. i don't know what's happening i had a shaman maestro alberto he was singing icaros to the bats and the bats started swirling around ha. that's not supposed to happen right maybe it's coincidence and then the in the doubters can say that but right. every time he would sing the bat nikoro the bats would come like i don't know what that is i can't explain it you know but it made sense to me so here's another one you know the the ayahuasca is made from a woody vine that has a drug called harmine in it that that makes you feel intoxicated but it's not visual and it's combined with a leaf of a, a cup of one or another species that have dmt in it that makes the chacruna opayaje wambisa right. but yep. dmt is not orally active it's broken down by an enzyme in the stomach monoamine oxidase so when anthropologists and botanists first reported that indians in south america were making this mixture they said that the dmt leaves couldn't possibly be had contribute to the effect because the the uh, dmt would be broken down in the stomach turns out that the vine the woody vine has compounds in it that inactivate monoamine oxidase so when you make that combination you get an orally active version of dmt so the botanist anthropologist when you ask them how did the indians come up with this they say it was trial and error and if you're in a classroom writing this down you say oh trial and error when i was down there cooking it with shamans and you see this profusion of vegetable life around it's hard to imagine that they're saying like well today's friday i think i'll try this plant <laughs> yeah just making right delicate like exactly right check it off notes <laughs> that didn't work anyway <laughs> but when you ask these guys how they came upon it they all said the same thing they said that the vine showed them envisions these other plants to use yeah. and i you know that's that bugs the science the crap out of scientists right but i think that's true i think people living really close to nature and open to their intuition are able to read those kinds of signs out there and and derive that kind of practical knowledge yeah i think one of the things that i'm really excited about as well is watching how science is going to start bridging the gap between some of these spiritual concepts mm-hmm. and just because it, there is a gap still because yeah, there's definitely. still there's there's a gap right. and i think that's that's fine yeah. but i don't believe that there always must and the necessity for that gap to be there will exist i think things have explanations mm-hmm. we just don't have the tests and we don't have the global understanding of the paradigm in which this operates that we can kind of actually 
really understand what's happening on this physical and metaphysical level. So I just feel like we're just in a temporary stage where we're just science and some of these metaphysical experiential understandings. I think both of you and I have come to from these plants or these different things. I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna have a nice handshake here mm -hmm. pretty soon. We're just waiting for that to happen, you know. And people probably a lot smarter than us will figure that out. <laughs> well, uh, the root problem that I see, and this really affects medicine and science in general, is that the dominant paradigm is materialism, and the materialistic paradigm says that all the only thing that's real, all that's real, is what you can physically touch, measure, see, and things that are not touchable, measurable, seeable don't exist. This is the problem in trying to talk about energy with materialistic scientists. You know, they, they think it's nuts, woo-woo. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the materialistic paradigm, if you observe a change in a physical system, the cause has to be physical. So this is why mind-body interactions don't compute and they're not taken seriously in medicine and why the placebo effect isn't taken seriously and why we're always trying to rule it out. And even though this stuff is in front of your face that you can see that non-physical thing, not, there can be non-physical causes of physical events, this is not allowed for in the reigning paradigm. Yeah. And that has to change. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a wild time when we, we actually have the knowledge and we're not acting on it, you right. know, like understanding that stress is contributing to some astronomically high percentage of yeah. medical visits. But the training that the doctors have to treat their patients for stress through meditative practices or through journaling right. exercise, they get no training in that. No, so what you, they are trained in is giving medications. Giving medications, right? right? So they're tackling it, tackling the physical attributes exactly. of it, like right. the cortisol or the GABA right. levels or whatever that is. But how about like, okay, how do you use the body actually release the right. stress on its sure. own? You know, and it's just a weird time where we understand and we have tools and the science, it's not like we've, we don't know if meditation works or we don't know if pranayama conscious breathing works. We do. We know it. There's studies out there that show that it does, that even there's a Japanese study. I talk about a bunch of my books, six deep breaths changes your blood pressure. Six, that's all you need. You know, you don't need to take a pill you can take six breaths like we have medicine all around us uh -huh. all around us but nobody owns a patent on that and you can't make money from it yeah they might try <laughs> <laughs> there's another japanese uh piece of research that i try to tell people about um they showed that laughter can actually turn off genes involved in the expression of type 2 diabetes. And these are experiments. This is at a major medical center. It was done in both mice and humans. I don't know how you make mice laugh. I think they did that. <laughs> I think they did it by tickling them and observing brain changes that they were, felt uh -huh. were consistent with laughter. The humans, they showed funny movies. But um, this is, you know, this absolutely doesn't compute in the Western world. The idea you could change gene function through some change in mood, that's fascinating. Mm. Well, again, goes, going back to the physical changes from something like these psychedelic medicines, right? right? Like the idea that if you take mushrooms, and sometimes it's a huge and amazing spiritual awakening journey, it's very serious. Like I, you know, the first half of my big journey, I completely evaporated into the fractal light of the sun like that was one <laughs> yeah, part like then the second part was howling with laughter at all of my own ignorance and all of the funny things that my friends who i was with and the guide everybody around me was just howling with laughter and to think like okay well the first part was useful but the second part wasn't useful that deep laugh that's the laugh oh, I think that's, that's so extremely deep. useful right you know and like that thing like being able to laugh like that yeah 
that's medicine. Absolutely. Well, you know about laughter yoga, I'm sure. I mean, that, this is a good thing to find out about. This was started by an Indian doctor in Mumbai who discovered that you can that f- fake laughter will become real if it's done in groups of people. So he gets groups of people together. Sometimes really big, 500, 1,000 people. And they start by doing physical exercises and then some breathing exercises. And they do ha, 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 ho, ho, ho. But after a few minutes, it becomes real laughter, with, you know, which can progress to where you're tearing and your diaphragm is paralyzed and you fall on the ground. And that's what you want. That's the good stuff. That's when yeah. the, the autonomic nervous system is being you know, recruited and being involved. That is a very good thing to do. I like that. Laughter yoga. You know, so I, I looked at a, <clears throat> there's a, a Buddhist named Muji, M-O-O-J-I, and I think they call him the, like the laughing Buddha or something like that. But he, uh, I don't know if they call him that. But anyways, it's Muji for sure. But that's what he's kind of known for. There's this infectious laughter where, you know, somebody will come to, with a very serious problem. I mean, they'll come to Muji. Muji, I have this very serious problem. <laughs> and he'll, you know, they'll start, he'll get them laughing about this very serious problem. And then he'll start laughing. And he's this big Jamaican-born, you know, Buddhist. And then everybody will start laughing. And these laughing fits will carry on, you know. And that is prob- a very good thing. And the problem then all of a sudden becomes so silly, you know, that, and it's just alchemized in this yeah, roaring yeah. laughter of like, I have this very serious problem and like it's life it's okay you know and like it's almost life is almost so complicated and so impossible to understand that laughter is like probably the most appropriate response couldn't agree more you know like that's like that's actually the most appropriate response yeah couldn't agree more that was my my mother who died at 93 that was one of her pieces of practical wisdom she said you never want to lose the ability to laugh at that thing she said you always have to be able to see the ridiculous side of life right (laughs) right and that's something that we forget too i mean even look i can look at my own life you know when I'm, I'll have some big problem. You know how many big problems I've had that I've totally forgotten about <laughs> that were not big problems at all? But in the moment, they're such a problem, you know, and they're not funny. Don't, how dare you talk about that? Like, don't mention that thing, you know? But if we can laugh about it, you know, and, and it's just that gives you the ability to release it. Yeah. You know, like, I think that's why humans it's probably one of like the biological evolutionary biological necessities of laughter anyways is like okay everything's really stressful if we can find it funny then it signals to everybody that it's okay Uh and then everybody can release all that stress yeah and then we can do that for ourselves laughter yoga i would like i would love i'm gonna try that read up on it and there's there's laughter yoga groups all over the world now that this guy has started so it's a it's a really good trend i'm in I'm convinced. It's a, I'm it's bringing, great. I'm bringing it's laughter great. yoga it's great. mainstream. Okay, we're yeah, doing, good, we're good, doing good, it. good, good, good. We're doing a it. Really good thing. Yeah, for sure. What are the other What are the other things that you know you've kind of uncovered in in your journeys and in your explorations that you think? Because a lot of these things people are catching on to. People are catching on to food. They're catching on to you know psychedelic medicine. Yep. They're catching on to some of these things. What are some of the other things that people are still kind of sleeping on? Well, you know, I, I'm a great proponent of breathe, breath control and breathing mm. exercise. It's so simple. And that's, you know, most people have never been taught how to breathe. And I think, I can't imagine anything that's more powerful to change your both mental state and physical state than regulating the breath. Uh, I teach that to almost everybody that I meet. 
and there's so little research on it because people don't take it seriously. You know, how right. could anything so simple possibly have an effect? Doesn't involve a drug, doesn't involve a device. Uh, but I think that's one of the most important keys to good physical and mental health. No doubt. What, so what's your breathing practice? What do you, what do you prefer? I, how do, do, you use I do a number. Well, first of all, just observing the breath, I think, is very useful. Mm. Another is... Becoming conscious of that unconscious yeah, just, behavior. Yeah, I think yeah. when you pay attention to your breath, it's, you're putting your mind in neutral. Now, there's far worse places to have your attention, such as on your <laughs> <Yeah>. thoughts <laughs> or on, on images in your mind. So yeah. it's like a safe place to put your attention. And then you want to try, whenever you think about it, try to make your breathing deeper, slower, quieter, and more regular. You know, those are the four qualities of breath you want to develop. Um, to make your breath deeper, you want to work with exhalation because that's the phase that's under more voluntary control. So you want to practice squeezing more air out of your lungs at the end of a breath and you automatically take more air in. And that is a good thing to get more air out and more air in. Mm. Um, if you watch people who are afraid, upset, anxious, breathing is always rapid, shallow, noisy, irregular. Yeah, chest breathing. Those two things can't be, then it can't go together. You can't be in an agitated state of mind and breathe deeply, slowly, quieter, and more regular. So th those are good things to work on. Yeah. Then I, there's a specific breath exercise that I teach called the 478 breath. And uh, if you Google my name and on YouTube, you'll get videos of how to do it. It's in all my books, but very simple. It's like breathing in quietly to a count of four, holding your breath for a count of seven and forcefully blowing air, air out through your mouth to a count of eight, doing that for four breath cycles at minimum of twice a day. And you got to do this religiously because you're, you're putting a signal into your involuntary nervous system. And the goal is to change the tone of the involuntary nervous system. When you're breathing out for eight seconds, do you have a particular mouth position that allows you to well, I, force I the air out? You without... try to put your tongue in the, you know, touch the tissue above your front teeth, behind your front teeth. Okay. And then it helps if you purse your lips out of it. So, okay. that and making an audible sound. Yeah. Because if you just open it wide up and you won't last eight seconds. Right. <laughs> but that's a, you know, also is practicing making your exhalation longer. And that's yeah. really key to good breathing practice. Anyway, if you do this, you got to do this minimum twice a day. Okay. And the really interesting stuff happens after about six weeks of regular practice. And I usually tell people that at the end of a month, if you're comfortable, go up to eight breath cycles. But that's the absolute maximum. People say, why can't I do it more? First of all, you don't have to. And secondly, you're really screwing around with brain chemistry and function when you do this. You know, this is not, it, it is a powerful intervention. Uh, so you want to be careful how you do it. But one of the That's just making people want to do it more. Again, you don't understand well, the audience I know, that I got well. <laughs> but, They're like, you can't handle 10 breath cycles. <laughs> you can't exactly, handle it. I know, it. I hear it, I hear it. <laughs> and they're like, oh yeah, bro? I can do 20. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I've been doing eight breath cycles twice. I do it more often during the day, but twice a day, probably for, geez, I don't know, 30 years, something like that. One effect is I have a really slow heart rate. It's usually around 43, sometimes 38. Wow, that's incredible. And I don't do phenomenal exercise. I mean, I'm active, but I, you know, the only thing that I can account, that can account for that is the breathing exercise. That's really great. That's a, that's a useful thing to know. Yeah. How's your sleep? Good. I, I like seven hours of sleep a night. Yeah. And I go to bed early. I'm usually in bed by 9, 9.30, and I get up when it gets light. Sometimes I'm up at 4. And uh, that works real well for me. And I generally sleep, sleep well. So some of, these, some of these characteristics that, you know, as people advance in age, you kind of, some would take for granted. Like, okay, my heart rate's going to go up because it's fighting a little right. harder. My sleep's going to get worse. You know, like some of these things. 
yeah, all right, you've done a lot of good, you've done a lot of things right in your life, but probably the breath work has been one of the... I think that's the- really central. I think that's a, a very powerful thing. And, you know, it's free. It doesn't take any equipment. Mm-hmm. You can do it anywhere. It's very time efficient. And uh, it's right under your nose. So throughout this podcast, we've been talking about good things that you can do for your body. And one of those principles of doing good things for your body is that anything you put on your skin gets in your body. That's why your skincare stuff is so important. So when you're looking for good quality skincare products, you really got to search the ingredients and you got to search the preservatives and everything else, all the carriers, everything that they put inside the products to make sure that you're putting good stuff on your body because that stuff is going to get in your body. And Alatura Naturals is by far my favorite of these companies. Not only have they had my back, like literally, when I got in a car accident, Andy sent me, who's the founder, he sent me a whole big box of all of his products. And then I started applying those to all my scars and using them. And I'm still using them now. I got a big bushy winter beard growing and I'm rubbing the Santal black in there and I'm using the gold serum and I'm using everything that he sent and continues to send because he's, again, always got my back to really meet my needs for caring for my skin. I mean, our skin is what we're moving around in and to take care of that makes a lot of sense to me. So for those of you interested in taking care of yourself in the best way possible, there is no better company that I know than Alatura. And they were also the first to support the podcast when I needed some support from my team to help this whole thing keep going as it is and as you guys are enjoying now. So please, if you're interested, return the favor on my behalf or your behalf or your skin's behalf and check out Alatura Naturals. You can go to alaturanaturals.com slash Aubrey. That's A-L-I-T-U-R-A naturals.com slash Aubrey. And you'll get 20% off if you go there. And there's also a coupon code that you can use, which is Aubrey, which will get you the same discount. So thanks for checking it out. Once again, alaturanaturals.com slash Aubrey. It's, there's so many free, I mean, as you look at that, like the sun giving vitamin D through the skin, like, look, I'm, you know, I'm a supplement guy, but you know what? It's the best best way to get vitamin D is through sun. And I think there's been this idea that sun is like, well, the dermatologists have made us so paranoid, so scared, you know, but really like the human body was designed to be exposed to sun. First of all, to set the circadian rhythm. Second of all, to absorb vitamin D, which is like involved in hundreds and hundreds of chemical reactions throughout the body. True. Now you, you know, above a certain latitude, for half the year, the sun is at too low an angle for you to make vitamin D efficiently. And you know where that line runs through in our country? Uh, I don't know. Probably the Northeast. <laughs> Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, wow. So north of that, for half the year, you're not going to be able to make much vitamin D. You could stand out naked in Central Park in February all day. And we'd probably get carried away before that, but you wouldn't make any vitamin <laughs> D. Uh, so, you know, that's a reason to supplement with it. But one reason why it's better to get it from sun exposure is that sun exposure increases vitamin D receptors in the skin. And as you age, you lose vitamin D receptors. And taking a supplement does not increase your vitamin D receptors. So it becomes harder and harder. Yeah, so it's good to get some of that through sun exposure, sensible sun exposure. All right, so we got breath, we got sun. Obviously, hydration is something that... Big one. I, 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 well, living in the desert, I'm very conscious about that. But, you know, I see so many people that don't, they say they don't like to drink water, they don't... Or, oh, it doesn't taste good. What right. do you mean it yeah, doesn't right. taste good? It's water. That's it's my delicious. favorite drink. My favorite drink. <laughs> it's the best. Yeah, right. Yeah. So probably people should be drinking more of that. Uh-huh. Uh, I think sleep 
and rest are important. I think physical activity and with physical activity, you know, I, I, as I said, I'm not a fanatical exerciser, but I'm active. And when I see people who are very long lived and very healthy, they've been active throughout their lives. Mm. I spent a number, I've been to Okinawa a number of times looking at, uh, the phenomenon of healthy aging over there. And these people are, you know, they, they don't work with personal trainers. They don't use gym equipment. They, it's their activities of daily living. You know, they're carrying fishing nets. They're hoeing the ground. Uh, they're active every day. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a huge difference. What about sex, Doc? Well, I think uh, <laughs> it's fun and it's good <laughs> for us. And there's, uh, you know, I think it can become a... I think it can be a, an obsession for many people and can use you up a say. lot of yes <laughs> and can use up a, you know a lot of energy that might be better spent elsewhere. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> the, 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 the understatement of the year. Right. <laughs> the understatement of the year. Yeah, I mean I think um I think certainly if you look at that as a whole though like the shame, guilt, repression, well, we're these in a things mess. these things actually are so much more caustic. Yeah. and create the opposite Absolutely. result you know it's right. like it should be just a part of daily life right like we like look at us and respect the animal that we're in well maybe we're moving in that direction it I seems like so. we are i think so and i think that's encouraging but you know people again ignoring what are the what are the effects what are the effects on the body of carrying shame about your sexuality yeah terrible shame. like terrible you know like these you know i've had <clears throat> Paul Check was on the podcast. He's worked with a lot of people. And I don't know if this is a term that he came up with, but he calls them diseases of repression. Oh, I like is, that. Is yeah. what, he, what he identifies yeah. things. It's these, the idea that people holding these things in, it manifests in physical yeah. form. You know, like whatever that is, whether it's the stress that they're cheating on their wife and, you know, they have some skin condition that you know that they reverse when they actually mm-hmm. come out and tell the truth and live an honest life or whether it's you know whatever whatever situation it could be it's really interesting to watch what happens when you like remove the stressor and then you open up your voice and open up your heart yeah. and like open up yeah. and start expressing then the body like is like oh thank thank goodness you know but you keep that all in you're you're sowing seeds of uh, of future trouble. Well, I, I see signs that we are making it easier for people to, you know, be more comfortable with their animal selves, mm-hmm. and just respecting and seeing our animal selves, like sending some love. I think we get so mind dominant. We think of ourselves as a mind, and then we have this body that we're usually angry at for some reason because it doesn't look like we want it right. to look, and it's not doing what we want it to. And how dare it get sick? You know, like how <laughs> stupid body. <laughs> You know, and we have this really, if we're in a relationship with our body, it's dysfunctional. We need uh-huh. to go to a therapist and like work out, like work out our relationship with our body. How many times do we compliment it? How many times do we yeah. like give it some love? You know, I mean, I think our bodies are amazing. It's, it's amazing. phenomenal that we are mostly healthy most of the time. There's so many things that can cause us, cause damage to us inside and out. And yet most of us are mostly healthy most of the time. And that's miraculous. Mm-hmm. And that's our internal healing system at work. And in my work as a physician, um, I think the majority of patients that I meet have no confidence in their body's ability to take care of things. And they run off and seek outside help. And the most valuable thing that I do for many people is just to tell them that I believe they can get better. And they've never had a doctor tell them that. Wow. 
that's wild. I think uh, it was Voltaire in a slightly uh, skeptical and, and kind of funny moment. He said, it's the job of the physician to distract the patient well, from, from, while, while nature, nature takes, takes care of the, the disease. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know? But even better than that, instead of just distracting them, give them some good practices. Exactly. Like, hey, why don't you breathe You know, breathe and right. eat well? And actually, maybe, do you have anything you're not telling the world? Like, maybe speak your mind. Yep. Like, all of these things that actual legitimate physicians should know about exactly. because they make... Right tangible concrete results on human health like if if we were steering that way wow and take advantage of the placebo effect you know if people want to be medicated instead of giving them prescription drugs i mean those are have their place but give them gentle natural things Mm -hmm. that you believe in and you know galvanize the healing response that way yeah yeah there's there's we need a revolution in healthcare because healthcare costs are climbing to oh, a it's rate kill us. that it's completely unsustainable. Right. Like we must shift or we're out of money. Absolutely. It's now 18% of our GDP and probably going to go up to 20 and that's unsustainable. And at the same time we have worse health outcomes than any other developed country. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that need to be shifted there but again desperation will cause the adaptation. Right. You know, which is unfortunate but you know if we're Interestingly, like we're probably the most desperate nation mm-hmm. in our healthcare situation, yep. which is a, eventually might be our well, advantage. Well, that favors my work. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it is what's making the integrative medicine go mainstream. Right. Which and it, it's going to create probably the most profound adaptation. Right. You know, and that's that's something that we just have to wait for. It's an unfortunate way that we have to get there because yep. it's very circuitous and causes a lot of collateral damage along the way. But nonetheless, the resistance that we're facing will create right. the adaptation, which will be hopefully, and it already is. Right. You know, like the like the work that you're doing, like the fact that you're open. You've opened 29 true food kitchens already, right? Those are like, great. So if you haven't gone to one, please do. It's uh, wonderful, sure do. Food, wonderful food, and it's an example of what restaurant food could be, and it's great. Yeah. Let me also tell you why I have dedicated my academic career towards changing medicine. Uh, You know, I direct a center here at the University of Arizona in integrative medicine. We train health professionals, medical students, medical residents, doctors. We've now graduated 2,000 physicians from very intensive trainings in all the things they got left out in regular medical school. And uh, we're extending this to residency training. And it's it's really happening. And one of my reasons for doing this is that I've always felt that, well, let me back up a minute. When you talk to Native Americans, and they, they use the word medicine a lot, you know, talk about medicine rocks, mm-hmm. medicine people, medicine songs, it has a much bigger meaning than our word. Right. You know, I call that medicine with a capital M, and it includes things like spirituality and magic and medicine, whereas our medicine is a very narrow view. We have doctors in our society are, are, have been put in the roles of shamans and priests in traditional societies. Mm. Now, we invest them with the same kind of power and belief. And they even got a little costume they have to right, wear, too. Exactly. <laughs> they are the, the priests of technological society. Yeah. But they are not trained in, in these other aspects, in these larger aspects of medicine. I think, and there, but there's a lot of, of consciousness tied up in medicine. And if we could get that area greened up a bit and freed up, I think that it had big spillover effects throughout society. So this is one reason why I'm focusing on trying to, you know, create a new generation of doctors and health professionals out there. And well, I think been, that'll have, been doing I'm it doing that, but I think years. that'll have large effects. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's really it's it's really remarkable, you know, that uh, the disparity that still exists because yep. the information is there. But we have I have a a great I have a good friend in uh, in Austin, and I have some great integrative medicine doctors oh, sure, yeah. and people who are really leading the charge, yep. like yourself. Um, but then you know we have a ER doc who goes to you know works at the local ER. And he's great. Like when you have something wrong, you know, like yeah, that's what you want. You want he's, that. He's awesome, right? But but then you start talking to him about wellness, <laughs> and it's like a constant argument. Yeah. You know, you start talking about things. Anything that we've talked about here, he would disagree. It's like yeah, right. it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's like, I got I got a drug for that. I got a I got a stitch pattern for that. Right. I got a, some some kind of treatment for that. That you know, it's just yeah, I know. It's very it's very very interesting that that there's just not a holistic approach. And granted, yeah, maybe that some people do need to specialize. And, you know, you want the guy who's there on the front lines, you know. Yeah, who's technically proficient. Putting faces together and doing the things that I had to have happen when I had my accident. But, like, that's good. But generally, just a little bit of awareness, just a little bit of, like, a more of a holistic understanding. Because the problem is he'll insert himself in a conversation and he has the MD credentials. Right. So he's like been deemed the, the this high priest. This is what priest. I mean, that we've made them the priests. Yeah, he's like Thomas. the high priest of right. the conversation. So like you're talking about God and then you have right. the, the bishop there that's yeah. like you have to defer to. And it's like, nah, bro, like <laughs> you're great at what you do. I get it. Exactly. You earned your MD title, but there's lots of stuff. Well, you know, the main function of, of shamans is to mediate between the visible world and the invisible world. How can you do that if you don't believe that there is an invisible world? <laughs> <laughs> Makes it difficult. Yeah. Makes it difficult. Yeah, no doubt. Let's talk about business for a second sure. because you've um, successfully, like really successfully, created a couple different business ventures i think probably you know true food, true food is kitchen is that that's been phenomenally that's, successful it's unbelievable right and uh you know you're mentioning 29 opened restaurants all corporately owned i mean that's yeah. really phenomenal growth i mean you see that sometimes in the franchise model but right. to be able to do that that's really remarkable how's that process been for you it's been fun. First of all, I don't, you know, I provide recipes. I oversee menus. Um, I do PR for it. It was my idea. This concept was mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been very gratifying to see people respond so to the food that I love and the food that I eat. I think one secret of its success is there's something for everyone there. You know, if you're a meat eater, vegetarian, vegan, keto, paleo, gluten-free, yeah. you can get something you want there and mixed groups can go. But above all, the food is delicious and beautiful. And it happens to be good for you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we don't rub people's faces in that. But I think people feel good when they eat there. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and the battle that I've fought all along is to convince people that there's no opposition between food that's delicious and food that's good for you. But you don't believe that unless you've had that experience. You know, many people think that eating healthy means giving up everything you like. And that's not so. Yeah, it's... Uh... <clears throat> It's a shame that that kind of came out. That was the first food that was healthy, right? Right. But it was also based on a lot of bad information where fat was bad and also sea salt was bad, right? right? Like human beings need both of those things, right? fat and sea salt. There was like a reason why they said a man was worth his salt or a woman was (laughs) worth their salt, right? Because that was the allotment. That was the salary they were given as a soldier in the Roman army. Your salary, your allotment of salt, your worth, your salt. We need salt. You know, we can overdo it, sure. Especially right. the artificial 
you know, artificial salt that we create right. that only has a very limited amount of the sodium chloride yeah. and basically maybe it's splash iodine. But like some of these ideas that were pervasive around health food, low sodium, low fat, they made things taste like shit. Okay, now let me say something you may not agree with. Okay. I think we need carbs also. Sure. And there are carbs and carbs. And people who reject all carbs really don't have any understanding of how our body uses them. You want carbs that are slow digesting, that don't raise blood sugar, are okay and useful. Um, you know, the Indians, natives who live just west of here, the Odom, um, used to be called the Papago. When the Gazdan Purchase was made, which we're living in, the border, the new border of the U.S. went right through their territory. So half of them wound up in Mexico, half of them wound up here. The Mexican Odom, these, were, these people were sedentary agriculturists, corn, bean, squash, diet, chili peppers, the me active physically. The Mexican Odom looked the same as they did back then. The American Odom are now three and 400 pound people with 90% rates of hypertension, type two diabetes, uh, you know, the worst. And they, their diet is ring dings and big gulps, you know, all the worst products of, now yep. the Mexican Odom, they were not on a, on a keto diet or a paleo, well, I guess it could call it a paleo diet, but they were eating starchy tubers yep. and nuts and things that are slow digesting and squashes, winter squashes that are slow digesting carbohydrates. They weren't eating no carbohydrates, but they were not eating sugar and flour and things in, and processed grains. So I think there's a big difference. People don't understand the difference between a whole grain and a grain that's been fucked with. You yeah. know, if I ask most people to name a whole grain food, the answer I get is whole wheat bread. You know, where's the grains? You know, and the FDA doesn't get this because they allow whole wheat bread to have stickers saying this is a whole grain product and good for you. Right. you know, the, when you mill a grain into flour, you convert the starch into a substance that has an infinite surface area. And it's a snap for digestive enzymes to turn that into sugar right. and raise blood sugar. When you eat a grain that's cracked, whole grain or one that's in a few big pieces, the starch is tightly compacted. It's enclosed more or less by a fibrous hull. And it has some fat in it that also slows gastric emptying. And it takes a long time for digestive enzymes to convert that to sugar. Right. So eating those kinds of carbs is okay, you know, in, in moderation. Um, but I think people who reject all carbs, you're rejecting very good foods like beans, which have protein and carbohydrate and minerals and fiber. And even grains in their whole form or cracked form, you know, are very useful foods. So it's not wise to eliminate Yeah, you won't, you won't find a disagreement for me. I mean, in, in the book that I wrote, I talk about the timing of those carbs, too, right, being sure. like they do tend to slow you down a little bit. So I, I like my carbs at dinner. Right. You know, I wanna, if I want to be high flying for right. an interview like this and be on my <laughs> toes, you know, it's like I'm going to have fewer carbs for my breakfast uh -huh. and fewer carbs for my lunch and then crack a big loaf of sourdough or some, something else that I really enjoy, sweet potatoes yep. or some other carbs for dinner. But I think that the, the, the understanding that the, like the process of getting into ketosis is a valuable mm -hmm. metabolic process and that you can do that through fasting yep. you know so and even the people who have these high carbohydrate diets back if you look ancestrally sometimes food ran out for a little while yeah and they were indic that's why like that's ketosis, why we have these that's genes. why we have these right. genes right. that are able to create you know the gluconeogenesis yep. and actually you know provide the brain with enough fuel 
without actually taking in any carbohydrate. Yep. Like we have that for a reason and it switches things on. So I would just encourage people to either, sure, if you want to continue with your diet normally and just fast for a couple of days, you'll right. get into ketosis that way. Or, you know, try a keto fast for a week, maybe a one or two days of fasting and five days yep. of higher fats, avocados, things like that. Just let your body feel what that feels like. Fuel your brain that way and then, you know, carry on your way. And generally try to reduce consumption of products made with flour and sugar. And those, that's an obvious one, right? right? Like soda, come on. Well, even more of you know, we're in such a nutritional mess in this country. It's hard, and hard to know where to begin. If I were going to begin somewhere, I would say that if we could get people to stop drinking sweet liquids, Liquid that sugars. would put us so that's far it. ahead of the curve. And it's not just soda. It's fruit juice. It's all these energy drinks, putting sugar in coffee and tea. It's if you could just get people to stop drinking sweet liquids, we would be so in so much better place nutritionally. Right. Yeah, especially like the, the very thin sweet liquids. You know, like, all right, if you want to put some fruits and different things in your smoothie, you know, uh -huh. you got the fiber in there, you got some right, fat right, right. in there, you know, it's going to, that's going to slow everything down right. too. That's sure, why exactly, fruit is right. naturally, is naturally contains some things that are beneficial. Like the fiber slows down the absorption exactly. of the sugar. So it's like the perfect little, perfect little yeah package sugar pack, you know for you it's a perfect little package right. for you so like those things are fine but like the thin if it's thin and it's sugary just don't do it just that's out yep. you, you rule that one out there's lots of cool things you can do you know and there's even great like stevia sodas and things mm -hmm. right now that mm -hmm. if you really want something sweet that tastes like a root beer right like there's options you're you're okay you know, like everything's okay. And that's the, that's a beautiful thing about the time that we live in now is it's a time where there are options for most everything. Yeah. We're very lucky. And people say, oh, but it costs much more. All right. But what is the priority of your spending then? Mm -hmm. You know, is the priority of your spending on the fancy clothes or the fancy things, or is it getting the stuff in your body? I mean, usually we have a little bit more income than we could allocate if we really prioritize our right. health. Well, that would certainly be one of my priorities. It should be the most, yeah. it should be the highest priority. And everybody who's sick, just take the advice from every sick person. You know how, how happily they would give up all their Rolexes and Rolls Royces? <laughs> yeah, for their health. For their health. Right. They would give it all up. Yep. They were like, okay, you got a one bedroom apartment and you're, you know, this is your bank account and whatever, but you're totally healthy. They'd be like, where can I sign and how fast can I sign? And does your pen have ink? Because I'm ready to sign right now. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the, and you've, you know that. I know that. Right. Spent a lifetime as a doctor with sick people. Like, but we don't recognize that until that happens, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So we're not taking the steps to prevent that moment. You know, like that prevention, that prevention starts now. So I think that, you know, we're, we really miss an opportunity to get this kind of stuff into education as early as possible, you know, from kindergarten on up through graduate school. And part of it begins with teaching people about the body's ability to heal itself and maintain itself and what the minimum things are you have to do to keep that. It's not that complicated. You know, it can be put in words in ways that people can connect with it. And I would say that should be a very high priority because I'll give you an example. All of your bone density, all of your bone mass and muscle mass are laid down in the early years up till say the late 20s. And after that, you don't make any new tissue. It's all downhill after that. And all you can do is slow down loss. And I think if young people understood that and really got that there are things you can do in those years that build up maximal muscle mass and bone density, 
And there are things you can do that sabotage that process, like drinking sodas, for example, and smoking. Uh, you can motivate them to take the right steps. I think most people don't know that. Yeah, there's definitely an absence of information and there's a lot of bad information, misinformation yep. that's been out there. And then just bad prioritization of, of what, we've, what we've been learning, you know, learning dates that you're going to forget for tests that don't matter. <laughs> right, like, exactly. how about you learn your breath technique that you yeah, were talking exactly, about, your right. 478 right. technique. And that comes instead of the pledge to allegiance to this thing that's creating this form of weird separatism that they're masking as nationalism, which doesn't matter anymore because we're all people infinite fast <laughs> at the same time. Like, what are we doing? I like that. Like, like let's breathe first, right. you know? Let's, like, understand that we need to get some sun and stretch our legs if it's a long class yep. and, like, move the body. And, and the simplest rule of nutrition and diet is you don't want to eat refined, processed, and manufactured food. That's there simple. You, you know, you want to eat food as close as possible to the way nature produces it. And that is not what we're serving in our no, schools no. either. Right. So, so you can't be teaching that in the school and serve, you know, something different in the school cafeteria. You know, it yeah. has to be consistent. And people don't understand how big an effect that has. Like there is one study even on just a basic multivitamin mm -hmm. and the recidivism rate like of, of kids I've who seen, are yeah. given a hall. Yep. Right. I've and you've probably that. seen that Same study. Number. Yep. So like kids... They, if you're in, ju in juvenile hall and you're given a multivitamin intervention, you're way less likely to come back because you're just, your brain's operating. So, you know, poor people in this country are, tend to be deficient in micronutrients. One of the most useful public health measures would be to supply free uh, to school kids a, a good multivitamin, multimineral supplement. So simple. So simple. Yeah. And like, we just underestimate. So we'll look at that as a cost line item. And be like, oh, well, you know, we can't afford right. that. But what's the cost of the crime, the yeah, arresting yeah, of the crime, yeah, all of that. the dealing with that, all of, that. All of the different, the, the health problems right. that are going to rise down the road. Right. It's like such short-sighted thinking. Right. And, you know, and then, I mean, then again, you can look at the spending of our country. Like, we need more fucking bombs. Like, like we're going to, like, we're preparing for a land war. Hello, we're not going to have any more land wars here. Like, people, we're not going to get invaded. You know, that's just not happening. We have nuclear submarines. It's like everybody's chill now. You know, like, like we don't need to keep spending so much. Like, I understand there's still uses and whatever. I'm not going to get into the full debate about this thing, but the spending for the military versus spending on yep. ah, universal. Okay, okay, you want universal health care? Fine, whatever. There's arguments to both sides of that. I get it. There's, an, and people can have their different opinions universal multivitamin for everybody no that argument makes sense. yeah right <laughs> like that like, can we all get behind that yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah there's science behind that like that'll be nice that makes sense to me i don't know well maybe it's coming i think it's coming and you know what else like you look at <clears throat> i'm a big fan of like utopian fiction and mm -hmm. also i've seen this in different places in new york different boroughs in new york where they'll have like public gardens yes which i think is a really fabulous. cool thing right. where like there's just gardens available that are growing yep. foods fabulous and that people are taking care of it and yep. then people can just harvest from the garden when they need some yeah, vegetables or something like that like trend. that should be right. everywhere we're just landscaping all kinds of shit what if we just made our landscaping with there's plenty of seeds you know we could have like edible foods all in our cities and all of the different parts and then that people who needed some could just harvest some fucking swiss chard from down the down at the park you know what i mean like that makes sense i like it i like it too well let's make it happen let's make it happen <laughs> you, 
you've been making so many things happen. So it's up to, you know, a lot of us in this next generation to start carrying some of these ideas and come up with some ways to just uh, either in a local small impact or just changing the, mm-hmm. the mindset, yep. the consciousness upstream yep. so that we start thinking about these things and like, all right, well, it's okay to have vegetables and maybe somebody will take there and ransack all the zucchinis and you know what? You just plant more zucchinis and you say, I hope you enjoyed all those zucchinis. Zucchinis you know? go crazy. I remember <laughs> I, I spent a summer in central Massachusetts and, uh, in front of people's houses, there'd be baskets of zucchinis with a sign saying, please take. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Zucchinis and blackberries and yeah, all these all things that. that are that are available. And just, just kind of shifting the mentality about that, right. I think. And also really just trying to help that sense of community. Yeah. You know, like, like that's such an important thing, too, where we don't feel so isolated from everybody around mm-hmm. us. Us versus them. Us yep. versus them. How about just us and us and us and yeah, us yeah. and us? all the way you know yep. that would make a huge difference too well thank you so much for everything yeah, i really enjoyed talking to the you. world yeah. and thanks you know for your patience and giving me the time to get out here and come visit you it's been obviously well worth the trip this has been amazing good i'm glad and i will get you a machikari godzilla oh, t-shirt as soon godzilla as possible <laughs> yeah it's going to be incredible um eat a true food kitchen go to machikari.com am 15 yeah to get save exactly. yourself some money on some delicious matcha you made it up in the bowl yeah um which is the way to do it yeah sure there's a whole art i know we have videos showing you how to do it yeah makes a difference energetically and actually probably energetically actually. <laughs> <laughs> that's woo woo Aubrey. <laughs> um well great to talk okay, to you good thanks so much thanks everybody peace Thanks for listening to the show, everybody. I hope this inspired you to treat yourself a little bit better and employ some of these techniques and tactics and information that we talk about on the podcast to help make you a better you. I love you guys. I'll see you next week.